0: Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the MD DDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagel, and tonight I'll be teaching on the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. So we're going to wrap up the Torah tonight. We've done a lesson on Genesis, one on Exodus and Leviticus, and then tonight on Numbers and Deuteronomy, probably the two least read of those five although I guess Leviticus is probably not read that much either Um, but in fact I think they are excellent books Uh, Numbers in particular I think it gets a bad rap because of its name being Numbers I think it's actually a really interesting book and then Deuteronomy is a bit of a rehash of stories that have already been told in Exodus but it's also a wonderful book and so I think you'll get a lot out of this Tonight, Uh, we'll be moving on into more of the Old Testament after this. Of course, this is our last meeting of 2018, and so we will not be back together until that first week of January in 2019. So a couple weeks off from the podcast. But let's go ahead and get started tonight with our lesson on Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay. All right. Um, Missing the flats tonight. They are uh, in Nashville. Um, Lauren's dad's having some things that was expected, so they're there. Um, but let's jump in with Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, so this will be the last part of the Torah, if you've been keeping up with that. It's interesting, like, reading different things about these books. Some people choose to call it the Pentateuch, which just means, like, first five books, basically. And then the Torah is the more the Jewish name. I prefer the Torah. I think that's a cooler way of thinking about it, so that's what I say. But uh, before we jump into these books, I want to talk about this idea of, did Moses write the Torah? And so I'll just ask you, growing up, was that your understanding of the Torah of these books? Was it, was it anyone's like understanding that he didn't write them? Not until you got to college. Not until you got to college. And then you got like you had these friends and you know, <laughs> um, mine would be pretty similar. Like I think I got to college. There's a couple things like that where it's like, oh wait, what? You know? That's a thing. Um and so I think like uh, surface level understanding is Moses wrote it. And so I want to talk about that. Um, and I think it's important to kinda of have this conversation while we're going through this. Um, and so we'll start with reasons why Moses did. That's your blank. Um, Well, in the Old Testament, it claims that he wrote it. We see that in Exodus several times, in Deuteronomy uh, a couple times, so Exodus 17, 34, 38, Deuteronomy 10, 31. We also see in Jewish tradition uh, that it's confirmed that he wrote it, and so that's all throughout the rabbinical writings and things like that. Uh, The New Testament also claims it, Mark 10, Mark 12, Luke 20, John 1, John 5, Romans 10, so there are references to Moses writing uh, portions of the Torah or different books that are in the Torah. All right, so those are good reasons why Moses did. Reasons why Moses did not, perhaps, is that Moses, you, as you read this and as you kind of have this idea, it might occur to you, I think the first one, I think I did hear this in high school, was that like, and this is like number two on here, but Deuteronomy 34, it ends with him dying. So obviously he didn't write that, unless he like knew, like I'm gonna write this and then I'm dead. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I think there's some, like, obvious, like, self-evident nature of, well, maybe he didn't write that part, um, but the first thing is Moses is spoken of in the third person throughout the Torah. It's possible that he wrote in third person, but, you know. Deuteronomy 34, it gives an account of his death, which we'll talk about tonight. There's also some anachronisms. Does anyone know what an anachronism is? You would have learned this in, like, 10th grade literature. It is. And uh, the the chronos and anachronism refers to something that's out of place in time, and so like if you have like a grandfather clock in Shakespeare or something like, that's not possible. Um, and so there's a list of Edomite kings that are in these books that would have followed the death of Moses. So there's no way he wrote that. Um, here's my favorite one though: is in Numbers twelve it says Moses is said to be more humble than any other man on the face of the earth. Probably he didn't write that. I'm gonna go with so. Or if he did, uh, I don't know, Moses. <laughs> you sure about that? Um, I just I laughed a little bit out loud when I read that. I was like, okay, that's a good point. Um, so here's the middle ground conclusion, because I think it's really easy like, to read the reasons why Moses did not write the Torah and be like, well, I guess he didn't write it. And to kind of like allow yourself to go down that road and be like intellectual, you know Moses didn't actually write that. And then it's not very far after that that you say, well, maybe what's written here is not inspired. And maybe when they say in the New Testament, well, that can't be inspired if he didn't actually write it. And then all of a sudden, all of it sort of falls apart. Um, so I think it's important to take an approach maybe that's more moderate, because I don't think we're going to know exactly. Um, and so the moderate conclusion, I would say, is, is that Moses is the author of the Torah's earliest draft or portions of the Torah, but not its final form. And I think that's fair. And then from a, like a Christian perspective, if we believe that the Bible is inspired and it's authoritative, that the Spirit graciously watches over, and this is your blank, the entire writing process, from beginning to end. If you may, that may not be a satisfactory kind of conclusion on that question, but I think it's where I have to end on it. Is well, you know, I think in general that's a whole other like lesson. Is is in what way is the Bible inspired? What does that mean? I'm reading through First uh, Corinthians right now. There's a lot of parts where Paul says, "I, not the Lord, say this," and it's like, okay. Well, does that mean everything else is the Lord speaking through you or is it some of it's you? I mean, so I think there's all, that's always going to be a source of doubt and a source of you know complexity in the Bible. But that's what I would say of, of Moses writing this. And so, of course, as we get into Deuteronomy tonight and it's Moses retelling all this stuff, he's obviously a part of these stories. He's a part of what's written down. I don't think that's something that we would question. But whether he actually wrote it down, we don't know. Alright, so uh, a thesis statement of the Torah. This is a key verse that we talked about back in Genesis. I just want to bring it up. And it is from Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the sort of con- like summary of that is that, and these are your blanks, when we are faithless, God is still faithful. And so what you'll see uh, really in all these books of the Torah is you see the Israelite people, the patriarchs themselves, being faithless, but God's still being faithful to this covenant that is established in Genesis 12. You're going to need to keep it down, Lucy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and I think that's the pattern. And, I, and we're going to have a couple of these Bible Project videos in here, and they do a good job of kind of highlighting that and how it is this sort of, uh, there's this covenant that's, that's, that Israelites try and break by sinning, but then God finds a way to mend that over and over again. Okay. All right, so let's get into the book of Numbers and then we'll watch a video, video here in a second. Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear about the book of Numbers, what do you think about? Boring. Boring. So why do, you, why do you say boring? And that's kind of my thought too, to be honest. It's kind of, it's a
1: history, but it doesn't really go in depth on some of the events. That you think would be more interesting. There's just like lists of names and stuff like that. Yeah.
2: I think the lists get a little confusing and just because they get so long, it like the lists of names and things, it gets hard to really keep up with what you're trying to think about and everything, too.
1: Also, I to don't feel like we have like the context to understand the people in the lists, or mm-hmm. I don't have the depth of knowledge to, whereas, like, yeah. Someone who's Jewish, who has grown up hearing stories of all these people in these lists, uh, it would mean more to them.
0: Yeah, the number of people of the tribe of Manasseh is not doing a lot for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, lots of lists, lots of numbers. I will push back, so of course I ask it because, you know. But I agree with you. That's like my first thought of numbers is like, oh, I don't read numbers. And there are lists, and not just of people, like of items and of things in the temple and or this tabernacle. Like if you've read it, it's like, ooh, I'm skipping over that. Um, you should listen to the audio version of Numbers and then it's really boring. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, because you can, you know. Um, how about this, though? What if the title of Numbers was instead, In the Desert? Doesn't that sound better? Not not, slowly, not in person. <laughs> <laughs> Still boring. <Nah>. Um, <laughs> so the Israelites, when they actually named this book, uh, it, the Hebrew title for the book is In the Desert, and the blank there is Bemin Bar, and I'm going to spell it, and I don't know why I chose this as a blank. I'm sorry. B E M I D B A R. One word. And that means in the desert. And it comes from the first line of what we call Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert. I think that's more interesting. Like if the book was called In the Desert or In the Wilderness or maybe Wilderness or something like that, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like all of a sudden. And I think it's a better way of thinking about the book because, yes, there are lists of numbers and things like that but it's really more about the time in which the Israelites are in the desert, they're in the wilderness. And we'll get to some kind of discussion about wilderness and what that means. And I think it's kind of interesting, but uh, they named it wrong, just a bad name. Okay, it's like a band that could be great, but their name's just not listening to that band, so. All right, let's watch the video. We'll come back and then we'll talk a little bit about some things in Numbers. And you can follow along on the poster. These videos that I've chosen are not like direct to the poster. I find that those are a little bit overly long. These are the more dramatic ones that I think are animated a lot cooler. So, and it it like won't play the sound at first, I'm sure. All right, so after watching the video, is it a boring book? I feel like the video makes it look so much more exciting. Um, so I, I think really it's just the title. That's all I can say. So I love like the whole Balaam Balik thing is fascinating. They're, they left out the talking donkey um, and I don't know why, but. Uh, Let's go through the thematic sections since this will be a resource for you. I mean, this is more of a summary of kind of what we just saw, but I think it's nice to just kind of have a summary. And it's true that with some of this we'll have some commentary, but some of this is just we're sort of stating the facts, and then we'll have a little bit of commentary, but there's only so much I can say about some of these stories, but I think it's kind of good to organize in your minds sort of what's in this. And this is from the Bible Project, this sort of thematic uh, sectioning. So the first section is, The Journey Begins. Um, and again, they, they do such a brilliant job with breaking these things down. So I feel like inadequate, but, you know, I'll do my best. So uh, God prepares the Israelites for traveling to the promised land, leading them as a cloud by day and fire at night over the tent. Um, I mentioned this I, yesterday. I guess it was in class. We were talking about we just wrapped the Old Testament in class. So we had like the last, the prophets, we had the prophets during the exile and then the prophets after the exile and the teacher was talking about how so he was he was an English teacher the teacher was he's now a history teacher but he plotted out the Old Testament and so like if you may remember this from English class you may not but you can kind of draw like oh man this pen terrible you can kind of draw like any story sort of like this all right and you've got like you know sort of the introduction They call it like the exposition maybe, I don't know. You get your plot, your setting, your characters, and then there is a conflict and there's sort of the rise of that conflict until the top of that, which is called the what? Climax. Climax, and then there is the sort of the the fall. So you get the rise, the fall, and then you have the denouement, which is a great word that I have to use. Uh, Not the denouement, it's the denouement. Um, Anyway, so like every story you can do that with. In the Old Testament, you would effectively have like Genesis and the introduction of the patriarchs and, and really, like maybe even just Genesis, basically like God is there. And our conflict kind of starts here. And our, con- our conflict is separation from God. It's our sin. And so then we have this long thing of judges and kings and then the prophets. And then we have really what we would call the climax of the Old Testament. What would you say is probably the climax of the Old Testament? You may not agree, but <coughs> as it pertains to the whole Old Testament. we're gonna say the destruction of the temple, okay? So you've got the destruction of the temple and then that means the Israelites go into Babylonian captivity. And then it sort of ends with Malachi at the very end, like giving his prophecy. And then there's like 400 years until Jesus and so on and so forth. But I thought that was a really cool way of sort of looking at it. But anyway, in that discussion, uh, we were talking about how these points along these lines, you know, we got Israelites failing and failing and failing over and over and over again. And the crazy thing about that is that they were living in the midst of God. There was a time where, and we're learning about here, where Israelites were literally guided by a cloud and by fire. And they still were terrible. <laughs> like they still, like, I mean, three days into the journey, they're complaining. It's bizarre. And it reminds me of that story in the New Testament of, I think it's the rich man and Lazarus, where it's like, if you could just send, you know, an angel or a prophet, you know, you know they'll turn and they'll, they'll believe. And it's like, I did that, and it doesn't happen that way. It's like, I gave them prophets. I gave them a cloud. I gave them fire. I gave them everything they possibly could. I gave them my presence in the middle of a tent that you followed around, that you worshiped around, and it didn't matter. And I think that's a scary thought, is that we think, well, God's so distant, but even if He's right on top of us, I don't think we'd notice. And so my conclusion to that is that God is present, God is here, and yet we don't really notice Him. Um, But anyway... All right, so promised land scouted. Um, your blanks are going to be Joshua and Caleb. And so Israel, uh, sorry, Israel reaches Canaan, sends out 12 spies. I think what's interesting is this is really early into this book. Okay, so it was like in three days they start to complain, which is really sad. We'll talk about the complaining later. Um, and then they, meet, they, they reach like outside of Canaan like really quick. And then, of course, they end up wandering for 40 years, which is ridiculous. Like trip that should have taken a couple weeks takes 40 years. It's bizarre. Uh, ten aren't with it. Joseph and Caleb, they're the good ones, and they believe God, and ultimately, they're the ones that get into the Promised Land. Then we have this section of unbelief and rebellion, and so most of the Israelites, of course, they believe the ten that complain, um, which just kind of reminds me of managing a team. And one day a lot of you will manage a team. You're going to be managing some residents, even worse. Um, but if one person decides to complain, people will listen to that. It takes so many more people to be positive about something, to actually like overwhelm the one or two that want to be negative. And I feel like you see that here too. And even worse, you have 10 that are negative, two that are positive. Um, and because of that, only Josh, Joshua, Caleb and their kids will inherit in the promised land, which is crazy. Um, I want to break down some of this complaining just to give you a kind of reference for it. But the people leave the base of Mount Sinai, the same mountain where they got the 10 commandments where all these amazing things happened. Okay, really important mountain and important landmark in, in the history of the Israelites. So they leave there and then it's like no time after that, they start complaining. And so there's seven different rebellions that happen in very quick succession. And I think this is where God sort of like gives up his desire to, to, to make them holy and just kind of give them over to their complaining, their unholiness. So in Numbers 11, uh, and the people complained about their hardships. Uh, Numbers 11 verse four, and the rabble among them had greedy desires and said, who will give us meat? So they had manna, but they wanted meat. So then God gave them quail, you know. Um, and then in Numbers twelve, even Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. This is his brother and his, his sister, and they complain and and talk out against him. I'm sure that felt good. Numbers fourteen, and all the community raised their voice and grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So now Aaron's in the in the in the negative group. I'm sure he's like, wait, I thought you were on my side. Um, and then and Korah with Nathan and uh, Abiram with two hundred and fifty leaders of the community rose up against Moses. Uh, number sixteen. And the entire community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, Numbers 16. And the people quarreled with Moses, Numbers 20, and the people spoke against God and Moses, Numbers 21. Those so seven times, like in in just a matter of a few weeks, where where everyone's complaining, complaining, complaining. And I keep saying it, but it, it like reminds me of being at work. It's just like every day I go to work, there's something new that's complained about. And it's just it, it takes everything I can to not just be like Lead yourselves, <laughs> like do your own thing, you know? And so, uh, you know, the next section kind of makes sense because I feel like Moses sometimes where it's like trying to lead you. We've got a cloud. We've got fire. Like God is with us and you won't listen. And all you can do is complain. Or it's like if you take a family trip and everyone's in the back of the car, you kind of think of that like National Lampoon's vacation sort of thing. And they just like can't be happy. That's just like kind of what this feels like to me. Um, and so Moses loses his cool. He's supposed to speak to the rock. That's your blank. That's what God tells him to do. To get water and it seems like a very silly thing that this is what discounts him from getting into the promised land um, but the other video on numbers i think explains this a little bit better and so he's frustrated with the complaining israelites can't blame him but he, he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it and because of this he's prevented from entering canaan which really stinks like a feel for moses like a, i kind of hate that um, but i think what's more than him striking the rock instead of speaking to it is this idea that I, and i can't remember the exact quote is he, he it makes it a matter of we bring the water out of the rock and not God. And so he sort of disobeys and dishonors God in that statement and in the action. So he's making it more about him and his action, whereas God wanted it to be about himself providing the water, which of course it would be God and not Moses. And so I think that Moses just got it wrong, kind of made it more about himself. And I think as a leader, it's very easy to get to that place where it's, it's all about you and You know, even as a leader in the church, it's, you know, it's your actions and not God's. And so it's important to keep that in mind and kind of use this example of Moses in that way. On to the last part of Numbers, maybe my favorite part, best part of the video, the way they animate Balaam, the little like thing on his head. It's cool. All right. So the king of Moab is Balak. He orders a sorcerer. How crazy is that? There's a sorcerer named Balaam to curse Israel. But the hilarious thing about it is that he can't curse Israel. So obviously he was good at this. It's almost like in a movie where there's like the hitman that they go after that's like really good at what they do and then he's unable to do anything. Um, This is like a even darker level where he's a sorcerer. And so he's gonna curse Israel, he can't do it. So all he can do is he tries to curse, but instead he he pronounced blessings. And he also prophesies. And so obviously there's that prophecy of Jesus that's in here, which is really cool. I always love that. And then because this Israel is spared from harm, so I'm going to read some of these verses. Numbers 22 verses 5 through 6. So he, that being Balak, sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, <laughs> which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt, that's the Israelites. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So that last little part. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. What does that remind you of? Ryan's got it. <laughs> well, it's sort of Genesis 50. There's another, there's another section of Genesis I'm looking for. In that section <laughs> Genesis 12 so this is the covenant to Abraham and it's like the same same uh, wording basically and so you basically establish that you have Balaam this sorcerer this earthly guy who's good at what he does and basically this king is saying I know that when you bless someone they're blessed and when you curse someone they're cursed but you have a God that's already said those same things so who's gonna win that battle Kind of reminds me of like the temple the, the prophets of Baal versus Elijah or something like that, where it's like this prophets of Baal, like you know, they, they they thought they could make some things happen, but against God they, they you know they lose miserably. So it's interesting. So in Genesis twelve, here's the verse. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall have a bless or be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse and in your families of the earth will be blessed. So it's that same same symmetry. So obviously like an Israelite reading this would have gotten that symmetry. Okay, let's talk a little bit about wilderness. Okay, Uh, as I said in the video, there's three wildernesses in Numbers. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. There's Mount Sinai, there's uh, Paran, and there's Moab. Your blank is wilderness. And just from like a literary standpoint, wilderness, like that idea or that motif or what I'm going to say, it's a concept that's used throughout literature and throughout life for things that are dangerous, threatening, or that take us out of our element, okay? And so I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. But when we think about the wilderness, we think of something typically that's scary. Yeah. Not all the time, but, but typically, like in literature or things like that. Um, the wilderness, it's wild. It's... Adventurous, yeah, but it's it's dangerous. Okay, um, you think about like fires, like in California, which those have I think now died down. Uh, I saw there was one that was started with someone uh, announcing the gender of their baby, like in Arizona or something. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Um, that baby should be taken away. <laughs> like no. Um, but it started. It was like several million dollars of damage from one of these gender reveals. <laughs> Do you take that down from Instagram, if it's caused all the fire? I think you take it down. Okay. Uh, I feel bad for that baby because there will be a day where it's like, you know, you're the baby that caused the... Okay. You killed dozens... Okay, never mind. Um, But that's an example of kind of the malevolent or the the, the dangerous side of of wilderness. Okay. Uh, uh, Albert Camus, he has a book called The Plague, and there's a quote from that where wilderness is creeping in on this town. So using that as sort of this idea of the plague, that it's wilderness that's coming from, so the wilderness is always outside of the city, right? Or the city or the town, like from a literary standpoint, there's always a safe zone, okay? But the wilderness that's creeping into the town, that's the plague. Even like in a video game or something, like if you've ever played like role-playing games, like Final Fantasy or Zelda, the cities are always like safe, right? You walk around, you talk to people, you go sleep in the inn, and then you go out in the wilderness, and all of a sudden you're getting attacked by people. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, you know? So I'm gonna stay off the trees, like in the old Zelda games. It's like, I'll just stay on the path. It's gonna be fine. Um, but that's the way we think of it. Now you even think of like shootings, school shootings, shootings in bars. That is an example of, you know, using guns like in wilderness for recreational purposes is fine. Like that's it's safe, there's a, there's a place for that. But you bring that wilderness into civilization and all of a sudden it's it's not okay it's it's dangerous it's not the way it's intended to be um, Ernest Shackleton does anyone know who Ernest Shackleton is you do of course you do, you guys no <laughs> what was he knows it called his family motto. i mean you're going to beat me there no and you have it in your phone no, no, no. okay i don't really think you're there. it's, it's movie. it's okay yeah. tell me about ernest shackleton Okay. I fully expected no one to know who that was so that's very impressive yes he was a British polar explorer he led three British expeditions to the Antarctic um, but he has a quote from from his I guess his biography that the wilderness is a character bearing down on me um, so that's the way he would think of and and Antarctica at that time was the wilderness for sure um, so now when we get to the Old Testament we get to the Bible the wilderness has different uses almost like a dual use and you may be kind of aware of this or starting to gain an awareness of this but um, it is also a place where there's holiness and so the wilderness is a place where Yahweh revealed himself through the burning bush that was out in the wilderness it is the place that up on the mountain where uh, he saved uh, Isaac from being sacrificed Um, it's also the abode of demons um, that threaten human beings with impurity sickness and death Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be challenged by Satan. That's into the wilderness. But then on the other side you have John the Baptist who lives in the wilderness and he calls people in the wilderness to be baptized and to repent. So you, see, you kinda have this like two sides of the same coin with the wilderness in the Bible, um, which is interesting. My question for you as we're starting to talk about both sides of this is, uh, and be honest, would you be comfortable listening and following someone who lived in the wilderness like John? So if you don't know John the Baptist, precursor to Jesus, lived out in the wilderness, he ate locusts, okay, and honey wafers, but locusts, let's focus on that, and he wore like animal clothing and things. Um, Would you be comfortable listening to someone like that or following someone like that? Living out in the wilderness? Or would you be more comfortable living in the city and listening to someone in the city? Come on, Ryan. Yeah, I probably wouldn't go in the wilderness. Okay, there you go. I'm not a big camper, so. I'm not either. I think we have that in common, Ryan. Anyone else, I mean, like it, I mean, you might. I mean, some people like the outdoors. You know. I mean, I'm looking at Caitlin, she's like, oh, man, I kind of like the outdoors, I don't know. Um, here's the way I would put it, is I think that we're more comfortable listening to people who have their lives put together. Um, and I think if you think of wilderness like that, is we don't like the what's unsafe. And we, we like adventure, okay, and, and we're stretching this metaphor a little too far maybe, but um, we, we like people that are not in the midst of wilderness, you could say. Okay, we like people that are safe, uh, that are clear leaders, that have no appearance of wilderness. So of a pastor, a lot of times pastors are uh, uncomfortable with revealing the wilderness of their lives or the things that are, are kind of coming in on them, like from that, that plague you know, example, that wilderness is creeping in on this town. I think we all have that in some sort of way and the ways in which the dangerous aspects of life are kind of creeping in on ourselves. Now, I would argue that the best possible pastor or leader is the one that's honest about those things. It is very upfront and very confessional uh, about those things. Um, This is a quote from Eric. It says, The wilderness is unfamiliar, uncomfortable. Few of us choose to go there, although most of us find uh, find ourselves there more often than we would like during lifespan's journeys. Pastors don't like it any more than their churches. Yet it is often in the wilderness that God does something transformative, renewing, or inspiring. God often uses the wilderness times of life to teach, to stretch, and to remake God's people. Okay, so you can kind of think of that a little bit as, as we're talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Now, for them, I don't know if you'd say it was a good thing or a bad thing. I think it had the opportunity to be a good thing. And I think really how God uses the wilderness in this book is really to sort of cleanse the people. He basically like says, look, if you're not going to follow me, I'm going to make you walk around and waste the rest of your life. And as soon as you all are dead, I'm going to move on to somebody that will listen to me, which is a pretty miserable way to have to live 40 years. But he did the same thing in the flood and he'll do the same thing again um, all right so I want to ask this and we'll see if you can kind of follow along with this uh, this idea but what have been some of the wildernesses in your life or maybe what are some of the wildernesses in your life presently like when you think of that like what what do you think of did I did I do a bad job? Uh, establishing that as an illusion. Katelyn thinks so, sorry Katelyn. I guess I could say, are there things that, that tend to creep into your life that bring danger or conflict? Is there, is there sort of a consistent thing that sort of hovers around you that, that brings that into your, your life? Yeah, I mean, surely there there are ones you're not going to be comfortable sharing. Um, That's not what I'm asking for. Um, But there, no. Um, I mean, I think like like obvious ones like you're in medical school. Like I think the stress is related to that. Uh, I think for me, uh, I would say like in in my relationship with Anna, it's. kind of some form of, I guess, like selfishness or like it's easy for me to not be present in the way that I should be. I don't know if that fits it exactly, but I think it's like some of that might be the extent to which I was raised in a household that that was kind of how it was set up. It's sort of like this thing that's always sort of been out there and these sort of like return to those habits maybe. I mean, without getting into detail, like, I think some of the things y'all share in prayer requests about kind of family things, like that might be it for you. It's just like this, it's like always out there, and you're not always surrounded by it, but when you are, it's like, ugh, you know. I think in a work setting, there are things that's like maybe consistent parts of people's personality that are kind of hidden and at, at, at a far distance until they're not. i got to deal with this, you know. Um... Might be sexual sin, or like you know, like lust, or um, a desire to, to cheat, or uh, you know, I don't I don't know what those things are, okay, but I think they're always there. Um, but the point that's kind of be made is that if you face those things and you're honest about those things, there is the potential for God to cleanse you of those things. It's kind of the point, and so it is through conflict or through fire that you can be uh, made more whole. You could say. Um, so you shouldn't be fearful necessarily in the same way that Jesus went into the wilderness intentionally to be challenged and tempted by Satan like we, we have to be able to, to stand firm in those sorts of situations so okay let's move on to Deuteronomy alright so this is actually a quote from Anna's mom I don't know if you remember this I, I was prepping for this I was going to teach this originally and ended up teaching something different but I saved this and I thought I'd give Rebecca a shout out but like She's just like randomly reading through Deuteronomy several months ago. And she sent this. I was like, oh, this is great. So I pulled it out as a quote. And so she said, my Bible reading has me in Deuteronomy right now. It's a great book to make one feel a desire to recommit to God and to be faithful to the covenant and to obey him. God expresses so much of his desire to have a people who are holy unto him, to trust, obey, to love, to be thankful and to receive his special blessing. So it's pretty cool. I thought that was good Anna's his mom is one of the more spiritual people i've ever known and she's like she sends emails out every sunday night and uh some of it's just like you know doldrums of life like i did this i got this coming up you know that kind of stuff but then a lot of times it'll be like real spiritual and she'll have like really profound things that she'll say so they're always having a bible study and do stuff like that so and it's cool getting to read this and it's rare that anyone's like, hey, I'm reading Deuteronomy, let me tell you about it. You know, So I thought it was pretty cool. But I think Deuteronomy for me, between Numbers and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the one that to me seems the least necessary because it is literally a retelling of the stories we've already had. So it's almost like, why does this exist? But I think she puts it in good context. Is, is it, it's the sort of story that n- we need to be reminded of. And I think that's why it plays an important part as a capstone of the Torah is that it is the same people that forgot these things three days into the, their journey, we need to be reminded of it too. So that's what Deuteronomy is really about. Let me show you this video. And I don't know why the volume doesn't work at first, but I'm sorry. The
2: Torah and spoiler alert, Moses is
0: die. <laughs> All right, so let's go into uh, the thematic sections here uh, of Deuteronomy. We'll summarize this, we'll talk a little bit about the Shema, and then we'll wrap up. All right, so first section is a new generation. And this is the point of Deuteronomy, I think, is it's retelling these core stories and ideas to a new people. And I think the, the cool thing about that is there's this hope in, in Moses that, well, these people will get this. Like, they're going to get this, they're going to live it out. So we know that's not how it works out, maybe in the short term, but ultimately it's not. So again, the way of way of humanity is, is the same. But uh, well in his years, so he's old, he's 120, Moses retells, that's your blank, the account of Mount Sinai and their parents 40 years in the wilderness to Israel's next generation. I think it's a cool image. Um, I also think it's crazy that these same people who are you know, taking over the helm that are walking into Canaan have watched all their like parents and their grandparents die. It's kind of macabre, but anyway. Uh, Love and obey. Moses reminds Israel's new generation to love, believe, and stay obedient to God and not fall into rebellion and unbelief like their parents did. Moses reviews the law. Moses reviews the terms of the Old Covenant laws to the new Israelites that include conduct for government establishment, civil and social responsibility, and worship. And then Moses' final speech. In his final speech, Moses charges the new Israel to choose between life and obeying God, or death and disobedience. He urges them to choose life. And then lastly, as we as we saw in the video, Moses passes the torch. And so Moses, his attendant, Joshua, is appointed as the new leader. His purpose completed, Moses travels up Mount Nebo. That's your blank, Mount Nebo. Why did I make that a blank? I don't know. NEBO, Mount Nebo. A little trivia. Uh, he sees the promised land. I think it's an interesting. In Deuteronomy, where the idea is that Moses, his vision had gone, and so he wasn't able to see clearly, but God allows him to see. At least that's how I have have been taught and how I interpret it. What I think again, it's really sad. It's really bittersweet um, about like the whole like story arc of Moses and starting as a baby that was you know know, drifted down the uh, the sea there, the river there. um, That now he reaches this point, he's within reach, and God allows him to see in the Promised Land. It's kind of a beautiful, but also a really bittersweet and sad thing. And then he dies at 120 years of age. Super important character in the Torah, of course. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about like kind of death and you know Moses as he reaches this point and he's, he's just like it has like movie written all over it. It's like this like classic sort of narrative of this character that um, not necessarily that he's sacrificing himself, but it kind of has that feeling of like. He's letting himself die so that others can live, kind of. Um, but I guess I'll ask this, and I don't want this to be too personal a question, but um, I'm sure many of us have had someone close to us pass away, and you may have been in a situation where you've been next to someone on their deathbed and been able to talk to them. I, mean, I know like with my grandma or with, with people like that I have. Um, have you ever been able to communicate with them about maybe some of the regrets that they've had? Uh, maybe get a little personal, and we may not get answers to it, but I hope we do. Um, so we'll start there. If we don't have answers to that specifically, we can kind of get at what we think some of the regrets would be. But has anyone been in that position where you've been able to talk to someone kind of at the end of their life about things they wish they had done? Anyone? My grandma talked about um, like wishing that she spent more time with
2: her kids than they remember. And um, just like
0: harvested feelings of unforgiveness, wishing that she would have let those go sooner. Hmm. That's great. And have you... She was a little bit of a unique character i mean she's yeah. a missionary and was all over the place and, and that, yeah that's really the only person that yeah well i think you know you bring up the point you can learn from someone's regrets upon death you know i think for moses probably his biggest regret is man i wish i hadn't hit that rock i mean i would have to think that's gone through his head a couple times <laughs> hit a rock twice and here i am you know um, and maybe he had other regrets i don't know and maybe maybe there's a lot of things he's proud of. I, I don't know what was going through his head. I would think he was re- regretful in some ways. I think you kind of get it, the things I hear most commonly about regrets, like on a deathbed situation, and I joke about, I think at the lecture you all were at, I think I, I joke about it a little bit, is, is that no one on their deathbed is wishing they had watched that third season of, you know, a Netflix show. Like, oh, man, I wish, you know, I didn't like season two, but... I bet I would have enjoyed season, you know. That's not the kind of stuff that we, you know, at that moment are, are wishing for. We're wishing for relationships, we're wishing for legacy items through life. Like, I wish I had written that book, or I wish I'd spent more time with those people I loved. Or, I wish I had not dwelled on anger and unforgiveness, and I wish I hadn't spent time doing stuff that didn't matter. You know, and so I, I think it's an important thing to kind of consider as you watch this, again, The sort of story arc of Moses, this incredible man that we've, you know, studied for thousands of years, and see that he had regrets and that he died in sort of a bittersweet sort of way. Um, and so I guess, I don't know if this is one we'll discuss, but I, I think it's important as you're, you're kind of getting to this stage in life where you're, you're getting through school, I know for a lot of you that was a huge goal and that is a part of your legacy, like that will, you know, you'll forever be thought of as a radiologist, okay? I mean, that's that's gonna be a part of your identity. I'll push back to say it should not be the main part of your identity and I, I think you get that. It's easy to think, say, well, of course not, but is really easy for it to be your prevailing legacy and the thing that defines you most of all, which is not what we're here for. Um, I think being a radiologist, being a respected doctor, being a respected engineer, whatever, uh, it offers you a lot of opportunities to create legacy and to share the gospel. But it should not be the main thing, okay? Um, And so when when you really start to think about like your legacy, it should start now, even though you're 22, 23, 24, 26, 27, whatever, Like You should be thinking about those things and ways in which you can prioritize your life to accomplish those goals. And know that at any point, you hit a rock twice and it can really screw a lot of that up, which is crazy. So, okay, let's move into the Shema. Not the Shema, the Shema. Uh, So the word is S-H-E-M-A. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, plus three other paragraphs, two of which are from Deuteronomy and one which is from Numbers is what is traditionally thought of as the Shema. And there's different versions of the Shema. This is a big deal to Jewish people. Probably most of you, if I'd say, what's the Shema? Minus the video telling you, you may not have known. And some of you may have known, okay? Of course, we know these verses. Oh, You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a song, okay? If you know that song. And if you don't, you're like, what song are you talking about? Anna will sing it for you now. <laughs> just kidding. Um, it's a, I guess it's just an cappella song, maybe. But anyway. Uh, the first verse of the Shema is, again, from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. It's among the best known in all of Jewish liturgy. It is recited at the climactic moment of the final prayer of Yom Kippur, Kippur which is the holiest day of the year. year. Yom Kippur, sorry. Uh, and it's actually, I did not know this, it's the last words before death. And so for like a a Jewish person, Orthodox Jew, this is what the last thing that they'll say. Um, It's also when it's recited, they cover their eyes with the right hand. And I read a lot about why they do that. But I think the main reason is to be able to focus. I think the other reason I kind of think of is you think of like Moses in the presence of God, him being so radiant, he has to like cover his face. There's some of that like awareness of the holiness of God and that you cover your eyes, kind of both to focus and then in some ways to kind of show respect for God which I think is cool. I I like the idea of that. I think it's interesting that Jesus himself, again, a Jew, in a a certain sense, a rabbi, he uh, cites the Shema as the most important part of the law. So you probably remember in Mark 12 where the guy comes up to Jesus, he says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus in Mark 12 says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength." And the second is this: "Love your neighbor as yourself." There is no commandment greater than these. So we have the song "Greatest Commands." It's another a cappella one. I don't know if sorry guys, there is some good Church Christ songs. So You have to learn them. I guess I should be apologizing. Yeah. it is a big song for us. Yeah. Um, but it's just these words: the, the greatest command, you know, is this: it's love your Lord, love your neighbor. Okay. We know that. And so I, I think you could say that the Shema sort of summarizes the way that we should think. And it sort of encapsulates the point of the Torah, uh, which is that we should understand the holiness of God, that he is our one God. And for the Israelites, in the face of all these other gods that they're going to you know, be around, that God is the one that is real, that God is the one who has power. Um, and if you want to live in the presence of God, uh, you need to do this. You need to understand that and respect his, you know, his holy uh, place you um, you respect his sovereignty. And I think it's important for us as we sort of think about these books and the conclusion of these books. And I guess there's a few things that sort of stand out about these books. I think the covenant for sure stands out from Genesis 12. The covenant to bless the people of Abraham and to curse those that stand in the way of that. And you see that push all the way through. Even when Israelites are bad, God chooses to hold up that covenant. Uh, also from Genesis 50 where As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So God takes what is evil or what seems bad and he makes it good, which I think is beautiful. Um, And in all of this, the answers to these questions, ultimately, the thing that resolves this tension between a holy God and a sinful man is is Jesus. Um, And you see that in Genesis 3. Um, So I'll ask this. It's kind of like a little final part. Uh, What is the overall story of the Torah? Uh, in your mind. And maybe I just did the overall story. Um, what, do you, what do you think its role is? The first five books of the Old Testament, what is its main role in your mind uh, in terms of the overall Bible? Do you think if we didn't have the Torah today, would it really matter?
2: supposed to do. So they wouldn't have had any frame of reference to know like it would, I guess it would kind of be a brand new
0: one then and it wouldn't be a redemption kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you see through all their ancient civilizations that the end point for those civilizations is not redemption. It's not Jesus. It's, uh, you know, at times great power, great wealth, and then nothing, you know, most civilizations have risen and fallen which Israel did too but in that there is the redemptive potential I feel like for
2: me like whenever I go back and read this it gives me a, a clear picture of who God is, where it's like I think you see a lot of like who God is and how God changes because I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to think like God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, like, he's ever-changing, but he's all one at a time, and, you know, it's like, yeah, a lot, but when you see this, you, you walk alongside God with him a little bit, and I just feel like I see more of who he is and how he works through it in a lot of areas, like, it highlights
0: it I mean, it seems like the whole Old Testament is just, like, they're preparing for Jesus to come, mm-hmm. and, I mean, and you also get, like, all creation where you are about who God is, and you get some of his character in that. So, I, yeah, I think it's essential. Yeah, so I, I don't think God, and I know you're not saying this, I don't think he changes, like his character doesn't change, but it almost like there's this like sense in the Old Testament that he like tries some things out that we mess up. Like, And I don't know that that's exactly, but there is that sense of like, well, let's try the garden, like this will be great, and it's like, well, we mess that up and then let's, let's try like this, and then he gives us the flood. You know, we build a, a tower to try and be greater than him, and then with each, like, patriarch and each judge and each king, it's just like, ah, you know, I keep trying and I keep trying, and then eventually it's like, all right, I guess I have to, you know, kill my son. Like, it's, it is sort of like this thought of, like, I'll try and do this, and you have different, like, leaders, and even Moses here at one point, like, kind of bargaining with God, like, please don't destroy them, like, please don't, send these snakes that are going to kill them like give me something um, and God does you know and so God is, is forced to uh, answer to his character so he's forced to be holy so it's almost like he, he has to come up with like ways around that in the face of people that are unholy um, so I think that's there's almost like this evolution of the way in which God chooses to interact with the people that he calls his own it's like for me the most interesting part about it is it's like this evolving narrative but you see like the thematic elements that repeat, like over and over and over. That's and, it a good way to say it. and especially like your bell shaped
2: curve of like the storyline arc that we all know, if you take mm-hmm. away the Torah, you don't you take away part of that bell-shaped curve where you have valuable parts of the story, you have the climax, you have the mm-hmm. results,
0: And in fairness, like that could be a lot more complex. There's many rises and many falls. Uh, but the main climax being the separation of man from the presence of God, like in that sense. Like God was with them in the garden. He was with them in the tabernacle. He was with them in the temple. And then the temple is destroyed, and they're, they're pushed away from, from God. And then they come back from that, and they don't even rebuild the temple. It's like... They start rebuilding their cities and kind of like restructuring things. And then God tells them through a couple prophets, like, no, 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 you need to to rebuild the temple, like this is important. And then of course, now Jesus lives within us. um, So that's the way in which we do have the presence of God. Um, Yeah, great, great thoughts. Um, What does it tell us as Christians? I think that's a big thing is it's, it is the most important document for Jews. It is in some ways important to Christians But increasingly, it seems not as important. And as we study it, it's like, that's so important. Um, But in a couple years where I've not studied it, I'll probably not be spending a lot of time with it, you know, in reality. But what, what does it tell us as Christians, I guess?
1: For one, it emphasizes God's faithfulness to this group of people that, you know, it seems like He gives every chance to. Um yet they keep turning away from him uh despite his blessings and then uh so in some way that kind of that's who we are I, or personally I the times I just keep turning away from God um yet I'm rem- always reminded of his faithfulness so.
0: Yeah, there's that, and there's also like the scary aspect of you turn turn away too much, and it, it was in the video um, that he kind of gives you over to it. And I think we talked about that maybe last week about Romans one, where it talks about people being given over to their sinfulness, and it's almost like you know, like with Pharaoh, it was like the first half Pharaoh was hardening his heart, and then the second half God was hardening his heart, which is to say God gave him over to it. It's like all right, Pharaoh, you this is what you want. I'll use it for this purpose, but you don't even have a choice anymore, effectively. Those are difficult things to understand, but I think you see God's faithfulness, but you also see his commitment to his character. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of scary. Um, As we should be. I think for me, that's what I appreciate the most about the Torah is um, an awareness of God as someone not to be messed with, I guess, and like a very powerful God. You see in Jesus like the loving, merciful side of God, and I think in the Old Testament, you see like the the king that sits on the throne that, that rules with a, you know, iron fist. I mean, it's a different kind of picture of who God is. So, which I think is a good reminder in the face of a culture that wants to tolerate everything, wants to be kind to everything, wants to love everything. Um, but there's an aspect of listening and obeying that is just as important. I think that's probably lost on a relativistic postmodern kind of people, maybe. Maybe not y'all, but maybe some of us. Well, I appreciate you guys for hanging with it, and uh, for Caitlin for recommending the Old Testament. Um, and I, I know it's a lot to get through. And hey, we're not even done with the Old Testament. We're not even close. There have 34 other books to get through. So uh, we'll start to speed up a little bit as we get into some of the other sections. We'll also slow down to focus on some like thematic concepts. We'll talk about, I think, like the promised land at one point. We'll do some of these sorts of things, uh, which I think will be fun. Uh, And then like we'll do 10 prophets in one night at one point. Okay, so I think it'll be fun. I've really enjoyed going through it, but that is it for tonight. Okay, so that's it for the Torah. We have wrapped up the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, In a couple weeks or three weeks rather, when we return, I believe we'll head on into the books that follow, so Joshua, and I think on through maybe it's 1 Kings that we do as a section. Um, We'll have different lessons that we'll do sort of intermittently, maybe a lesson on the Promised Land or some other kind of thematic concepts, and I think we'll really enjoy doing those together, an opportunity to to more reflect on the big picture and the ideas that are uh, addressed in these books. Um, And then we'll be in the Old Testament for a while, so several weeks that we'll be spending getting through all 39 books. Um, some as a group, we'll do the Prophets where we'll do maybe 10 in a night. And then we'll do some others like the Books of Wisdom where we'll just cover 5 in a night. But I, I promise that it will be a really uh, wonderful journey together through these uh, amazing and ancient words. So that's all we have for this week. Hopefully you are doing well. If you're in the Memphis area, you're a medical, dental, healthcare student, and uh, you're available on Monday nights, come to our house. You can message me, Kyle Fagala, online, find out more, and we'd love to have you in our home. Merry Christmas, it is the season of Christmas right now and uh, hopefully you get a chance to spend that with your family and I would just encourage you as you have any relationships that are broken that need to be mended that you do that at Christmas. You really focus time on on being patient and loving with those that you're gonna spend time with and that you show Christ through the way that you uh, treat those people during that time. It's easy to get upset with people or to argue, but don't let that be what defines your time with your loved ones. We will see you in a few weeks on the MDDS podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.